Belt and Road Initiative may be China's idea, but its opportunities and outcomes are going to benefit the world. China has no geopolitical motives, seeks no exclusionary blocks, and imposes no business deals on others. Can you guess who that was, Stuart? I'm guessing it's the President of China or the Secretary General of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is it? It was in 2017. And for some reason, we've got into the habit of every episode of What China Wants, starting with a quote from Xi Jinping. I suppose it's just the gift that keeps on giving. But in this case, it is very pertinent because we're talking about the PGII, which is the new equivalent of the Belt and Road Initiative or BRI that the West and America and mainly Britain have now agreed to set up. And we thought that it would be very good to go through this and have a look and see what this means, what this means for the West, what this means for the rest of the world, and how it compares to the BRI. But I suppose the first question is, Stuart, what is the PGI? So I think this is Build Back Better Mark II, isn't it, Sam? It, it is, yes. It's just a rebranding of what had come out before. The headline numbers look big in the sense that the sort of title number that is thrown around is $600 billion. But my understanding of that is $200 billion of it is US taxpayers' money, and the rest of it is to come from other G7 countries and the private sector. And so $600 billion does sound like an awful lot. The target, I think, is to distribute it over five years which, again, might be ambitious, in fact, because it just takes a long time to sort of find the right projects and finance them. So I wouldn't hold my breath in terms of the timeline. But what's your understanding of it? Does that gel with what you've seen, Sam? And what's the political background to that? Well, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment is designed to do exactly that, which is to build a partnership between the Western countries and between those Western countries and the developing world to invest in infrastructure. And you're right, $600 billion is the headline figure over five years, $200 billion from America, $400 billion from the rest. I don't think there has been an announcement on exactly how that other $400 billion has been broken down, but it is going to compete against a BRI, which is significantly more funded to get onto that in a moment. But the four main priority areas for the PGII are uh, climate and energy security, digital connectivity, health systems and health security, and gender equality and equity. And the plan is for America leading the way and, and the rest of us following to get out there and to say to the developing world, hey, listen, we've got money, we can invest in your projects in these four areas. What have you got for us and how can we help? Given your expertise, it's the digital side that has caught your attention, is it? Why might that be important? Well, it is. And actually, that makes a very good question in terms of where the West is uh, with regard to its competition with China, because something that hasn't really been focused on too much by people is the fight over standards, especially technological standards. And we should make no bones about it. The PGI and the BRI will be competing on technological standards. But before we get on to that, I think maybe of interest to look at why that's important from a political background. Well, last year, the Build Back Better uh, program, which Biden wanted to launch internally, which is a $2 trillion sort of reinvestment in, in America after years of neglecting their infrastructure program, that was Biden's showpiece. And the aim of Build Back Better worldwide uh, which is launched at the G7 Summit. The aim with that was to capitalise on, on the initiative and the impetus there and to create something globally that could compete against BRI. Now, the problem with that 
was that it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is partly because the Build Back Better program in America was killed by one of Biden's own senators. So therefore, that kind of knocked the stuffing out of the international equivalent. So this is a relaunch with significantly less money put into it than the Build Back Better worldwide. But then things are very different. You have the war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, etc. all happened in the last year. And so there is less money to go around. And I think people would feel less comfortable about telling their electorates that they're going to invest more in the developing world, considering the tightenings that's happening at home. But I think that there is a realisation, a political realisation, that something has to be done in order to compete against China. And then that brings us forward back to your earlier question about the digital side, in particular in the digital front, because we need to make no bones about it, the digital side is where China is winning against the West, it's setting standards and, and setting its stall out in terms of its influence in those countries for years and years to come, because digital infrastructure now dictates so much, whether it's defense and security, whether it's the direction of travel for the economy, whether it's the education and transport mechanisms within the country, so much of it depends increasingly so on this digital infrastructure. So for the West to really stand a chance of competing against China in the developing world in, in its long-term influence, it has to look at the digital infrastructure side, and I was very glad to see it do it. The question is, Stuart, for you, is that from an economic point of view, is any of this going to work? I mean, politically, you can see the rationale, but from an economic point of view, is there any rationale behind us delving into such a big programme? I think to answer that, you have to start off by looking at what the economic rationale behind the Belt and Road Initiative is. And there's a very strong economic rationale behind it. China, as most of our listeners will be aware, saves a huge amount of money. So China has a savings rate that is not far off 50% of GDP. And despite the fact that they have some of the highest levels of domestic investment in the world that the world's ever seen, in fact, over a very sustained period, investment to GDP is about 45% of GDP in China. They have a savings surplus. And if you have a savings surplus, you have to export those savings. So that's reflected in the current account surplus that China runs. So in the last five years, for example, China's cumulative current account surplus has been about $900 billion. That means that China has, on a net basis, exported $900 billion of capital. But those net exports of capital are augmented to the degree to which foreigners invest in China. And in the last five years, foreigners have bought about $2.5 trillion of investments in China. So taking the sort of $900 billion of current account surplus plus foreigners' gross investment in China of $2.5 trillion or so, that means that there's been about $3.3 trillion of capital exports from China over the last five years. Now, historically, what China did before 2013 was that most of the capital exports from China simply went into foreign exchange reserves. So China was buying US treasuries primarily, but also other central bank assets, rather the liabilities of those central banks or governments, which were China's overseas assets. But since the sort of going out program and the diversification of China's capital outflows, They've largely stopped buying foreign exchange reserves or acquiring foreign exchange reserves. And the state-owned enterprises have taken the lead in investing overseas. Now, there's an obvious problem with the G7 pushback to this, and that is that the United States is a net capital importer 
not a net capital exporter like China. And therefore, its firepower is constrained by the willingness of countries that are capital exporters to buy US assets, because that really is the determinant of how much the US can put overseas. Can I just be clear on something, Stuart, just for the sake of those listeners who are on more on my side than on your side in terms of their expertise, is what you're saying is that America is going to have to borrow money in order to re-export that money through the PGI. Borrowing's the wrong word because borrowing implies debt and capital outflows can take any form. You know, they could be equity or debt. Obviously, the government element will have to be borrowed because the government is running a deficit in the United States. The private sector capital exports could come in any shape, but it is contingent on someone buying the dollar. A currency is a closed loop system. When someone sells a US dollar, someone on the other side has to buy it. Now, of course, some of this investment might be denominated in dollars, but ultimately those dollars will have to be sold to buy the cement, the steel or whatever it is, unless that is coming from the United States or denominated in dollars. So America's ability to invest overseas is constrained by the fact that it doesn't save enough domestically to actually cover its domestic investment requirements, whereas China produces this domestic savings surplus. Obviously, China's capital exports have been largely state-driven. There's an organization called the State Administration for Foreign Exchange, SAFE, as they're called, who oversee China's capital account. And what's interesting is even their own statistics do not account satisfactorily for the capital outflows. So the errors and emissions number over the last five years has actually been just shy of a trillion dollars. So there have been a trillion dollars of capital exports from China over the last five years that the state authorities don't know where it's gone, right. which is surprising given the tightness of their capital controls. So really, China's capital exports fall into two categories, I would argue. One is tightly state-controlled and directed investments overseas, and the other is illicit or semi-illicit capital flight from China, which you know arguably has nothing to do with the regime. In fact, it's potentially savings trying to escape the grasp of the regime. But those numbers give you an idea of the quantum of investment that is going overseas from China and has been. And so officially, China has about $6.6 trillion of overseas assets that the government know about. There might be closer to $8 trillion when you include that that they don't know about. Now, looked at from that perspective, 600 billion does not seem very much. So, no. But in what percentage of that 8 trillion or whatever has gone through the Belt and Road? I, I look at figures, sometimes people say 1 trillion, sometimes people say 4 trillion over the last 10 years. I mean, do we know? Well, there's a massive difference between the headline numbers that you see talked about and what can actually be accounted for when you drill down on a project-by-project project basis. So, for example, if you look at the American Enterprise Institute's China Global Investment Tracker, which is a fantastic resource that I encourage our listeners to utilize, uh, they would argue that total investment and construction activity you know, going back to 2005, and obviously most of it's happened since 2013. In fact, all of it's happened since 2013. That is associated with Belt and Road is only about $800 billion. Now, that would contrast very sharply with 
the sort of propaganda and headline sort of hyperbole that might put Belt and Road's value in the trillions of dollars. Clearly, this is a reflection of several things. The overstatement of the, the value of headline projects, the problems that some of the projects have run into in terms of they just simply haven't come to fruition. And of course, many of them get scaled back when the true economic cost to the host country becomes apparent. So again, looked at from that prism, the 800 billion of BRI money since 2013, then the 600 billion is comparable. I suppose the question I'd ask you, Sam, here is, is this even the right approach? I mean, we know that China uses its BRI projects to promote its state-owned enterprises to, in some ways, dump surplus cement and steel capacity from China overseas. It also creates employment for Chinese workers who then move overseas. These are not traits that would be associated, I think, with the G7 equivalent. But we also know that China cultivates structural influence in countries through the ownership of infrastructure. Is that a route that we should be trying to follow? Or should we actually not be trying to compete on the infrastructure side so much as on the soft infrastructure, the digital side, the software, the engineering so, first of all, I hadn't actually thought about it, but you're right that China does use the BRI to export an awful lot of manpower, and I use that word advisedly because it's almost entirely men being sent abroad, partly to compensate for the fact that China's got between 20 and 40 million extra men, thanks to female infanticide over the last 30, 40 years, as a result of the one child per family regime. So, that's a lot of extra men that they need to get rid of, and the BRI provides a great mechanism to do so by saying we'll build your bridge in Nigeria or Laos or whatever but you have to take 22,000 men in exchange and I don't think the UK or America is going to start <laughs> exporting the manpower like that although the producers of, of We The Same Pet from the 1980s might find rich pickings there if we were to do so but in terms of the main crux of your question is it actually worthwhile us doing it well I take a leaf out of your book and say well let's have a look at the BRI there are many reasons for the BRI in fact it is not just about the economics that from the politics side they get an awful lot of influence in these countries because 138 nations have now signed up to the BRI including 38 in sub-Saharan Africa to a greater or lesser extent of course not every country signs up to every single part of it but what is interesting is that the countries where China has the greatest influence and you and I Stuart we measure influence of China using our models it's no coincidence that the countries which feel the greatest influence from China are those perhaps most indebted to China through the BRI. But it's not just about the here and now and about creating debt diplomacy. I mean, we know that that's overstated. A lot of countries have far greater debts to the West than they do to China in pure monetary value. But what is important is the political and economic debt that the BRI can foster in these countries. And a good example for that is where the BRI, for example, leads to the creation or the construction, I should say, of military infrastructure or health infrastructure. This gives China an awful lot of influence, not just about the now, but the future. And I mentioned that with the digital infrastructure. And China exporting digital infrastructure puts its hands on the levers of development for many countries. And that is really important for the long-term 
decision making of that country. And I think the West has to go toe to toe with China if it wants to actually have a say in that. And there are many examples that you and I spoke about. I mean, do you remember speaking about the Pacific last week? It's quite clear that the Pacific is being targeted through the BRI and, and other similar initiatives in order to capture parts of those countries which would be best suited for providing long-term influence for China, whether it's building out the fisheries or whether it's building more of the digital infrastructure, etc. It is not about the here and now necessarily. It is majority looking at the future. And economically, I suppose that makes sense. Um, one of the key issues with BRI has been the potential for corruption and elite capture through BRI projects lining the pockets effectively of local politicians and local business elites, which then, of course, compromises them. Now, presumably, the G7 alternative is not going to be aimed at elite capture. Therefore, will we find actually fertile ground? Because presumably, those decision makers who are trying to do the right thing by their country and get value for money do need an alternative source of funding to China, but that has been available through the multinational development banks, etc. Those that have chosen to go down the BRI road have either done so because of a genuine cost-benefit analysis that means that China is the cheaper alternative, or because there has been a kickback for them as a result of doing so. If China is the cheapest alternative, it will probably remain so. And if people are after a kickback, well, they won't be getting that from G7. So I'm just wondering whether we will be able to disperse the money. Well, good question, Stuart. For me, the greatest strength of the PGI is actually also its greatest weakness. Now, quite stark contrast, the PGI has made a great deal about it being a values-driven program with high standards, transparency, and so on. That is not the same with the BRI. I mean, we don't even know how much the BRI has, has spent, for starters. But I think that if you are looking to compete against the BRI with countries with less than perfect value systems, where the elites basically can do what they want, then yes, there will be difficulties there competing, especially considering the beneficial economic terms that the BRI often comes up with. But I think what we have to realize is that there are an awful lot of countries around the world, the majority, I would say, who actively do want to progress along the values curve. And there are people within those countries who are trying to make the case for that, almost without exception. So what the PGI does is it gives the people within the countries who do want to progress in that way an alternative to the BRI, and it strengthens their hand. So not every battle against the BRI will be won, and not every single piece of infrastructure development will be lily white perfect, but there will be the potential for those people that do want to move towards the values-driven investment side to have an alternative that they can get their hands on. So Sam, in your view, which countries or which regions would G7 get the most bang for its buck from competing head-on with the Chinese in infrastructure development? Well, that's a good question. And I can only really talk from a political point of view. I'd like to know your answers on the economic side, but I would love to be able to see some of the sort of the documentation behind this. My gut feel was that this is primarily aimed at those countries on the periphery between developed and developing, for example, Eastern Europe, 
some of the more advanced countries in Africa and in Asia, where there is more of a rule of law, where there is more of a debate internally about doing the right thing. Countries which are much more beholden on China because of the corruption at the elite level, Zimbabwe, for example, I don't think the PGI is going to have much luck there. But if you just look at some of the countries which have been announced as being primary recipients of the PGI money, it's Angola, well, that's a bit of a surprise, but Senegal, yeah, they're, they're doing all right. A modular nuclear reactor in Romania, exactly the kind of country that I'd expect would be politically able to take advantage of this. But from an economic point of view, I mean, do you think there will be a split in those countries that find it beneficial and, and those that prefer the BRI? Is it just about cheapness at the end of the day if you take the political side out? I think the value for money proposition is important. But equally, I think one has to be aware that there are countries where there simply don't exist the domestic expertise and capabilities to build the kind of hard infrastructure that a modern economy requires. And China, because of its large domestic investment program, has developed large-scale construction and engineering companies that are capable of executing projects cheaply, on time, fast, and, and that has had considerable appeal. So if you look at the success of the economic corridors through Pakistan, for example, and into Southeast Asia, Chinese SOE construction companies have been incredibly heavily in involved in that. And I guess what the West should be offering by way of competition is more skills transfer and technological transfer, because the impression I have is that that has not been a factor in BRI. It's very much been that the Chinese companies move in, the Chinese workers move in, Chinese materials are used, the project's completed, and, well, many of the Chinese workers then stay. But there isn't the skills transfer. And so, to my mind, maybe more of a facilitation approach and a greater degree of local participation, local content, and establishing local companies who can then take the infrastructure development forward it is perhaps the way to win hearts and minds as well as offering a sort of value proposition. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. If this PGII becomes just a vehicle for getting the, the most value for money, then I think we will lose as the West time and time again against the Chinese. It has to be much more than that. And the skills transfer, making sure that we tell the world that this is about values and about helping countries to develop for the longer term, rather than just for the short term, build a dam and see what happens. I think all of those things need to be in the messaging. But at the end of the day, if there is no money to invest, then obviously that won't get very far in the hearts or the mind of the target countries. So it is a combination between economic push and political messaging. And so, Stuart, just for a final thought, what's your gut feel? Is this going to work or is this going to be killed by the BRI? I don't think either extreme is necessarily what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think that when you define, what would you define as working? I think that this project will have worked if policymakers in the global south are given a genuine alternative to accepting Chinese capital. And if our value system and transparency are increased as a result of offering that, it will also work, I suppose, if we can help curb the spread of sort of China's information technology infrastructure 
around the world, because I think that poses significant threat to the sovereignty of many countries in the global south. But to do that, we need to have a good product offering of our own. And in the area of 5G, you know, we've been found wanting, or at least that is the common perception. 5G has gained acceptance in much of the world because it's perceived as being the only option. And for me, my question really is this, would this money have been better spent making sure that we do have the product offerings available to give people a genuine choice? Very good question. And I think what we need to do is come back for another podcast and talk about the West's technological options when it comes to competing against China. And we actually have a guest lined up for that, but more on that later. Right, we'd better call it time there, Stuart. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. We'll be back with a new episode of What China Wants next week. Goodbye. Bye.